welcome to season six of National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And y'all, it is the episode you have been waiting for. If you somehow missed it being in the National Treasureverse, uh, there's a little series that premiered like during our off season of the podcast. Uh, have you heard of it? If you haven't, it's called National Treasure Edge of History. Uh, And I feel like if you're listening in, you must know about it because you either found us from the stuff we've been tweeting about it or you've been following us and then therefore saw all of our posts on social media about being at the premiere. Yeah, so as the person who monitors our social media, I cannot tell you all how many questions we've gotten about, oh my gosh, how do you feel about the series? You know, do you like this? Do you hate that? It's the day we get to answer your questions, you guys. Today, we are going to be giving a recap and our personal commentary and feelings on Season 1, Episodes 1 through 5 of National Treasure Edge of History on Disney+. But before we get into that, like Emily said, we know that we have some new listeners out there for the first time this season. Welcome to the hunt. We're so happy to have you um, and thought we would very quickly reintroduce ourselves for any newcomers. So, um Hi, everyone. My name is Aubrey Paris. I am one of your two National Treasure Hunt co-hosts. My day job, I live in Washington, D.C. I work in the sort of foreign policy arena, but I'm a chemist by training. I like to say I just get bored and can't stick with one thing because I like too many things. Um, And one of those things that I really like is, of course, National Treasure. And for National Treasure Hunt, the podcast... um, Of course, I'm one of your co-hosts. I do kind of basic decision-making and producing, and I run our social media and website. And I'm joined by my lovely colleague and former college roommate, Emily. Hi! I'm Emily. Um, Yes, I once lived with Aubrey. Um, That was a pretty cool experience. She lived to tell the tale. I did. I am alive, even though there were moments... (laughs) (laughs) when it felt like I might not be um anyway I like Aubrey uh went to graduate school after college I got my PhD in neuroscience so I am currently uh working as a postdoctoral fellow at Temple University uh I live right outside Philadelphia and I also am an adjunct professor of neuroscience at Haverford College uh in terms of the National Treasure Hunt podcast I am the person that gets to cut out anything from the episodes that Aubrey says that I do not like. Um, (laughs) I don't really do that. I'm the audio editor, and I also um, wrote the any of the music that you hear throughout the podcast. Yes, she's very good at that. She's also, you know, our resident musical expert. So um, that's us. We'd love to learn more about you. So if this is one of your first times listening, feel free to send us a note on social media um, and tell us who you are, uh, where you're listening from, and what your relationship with National Treasure is. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. 
We are also available for your listening ears on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. You can also check out all of the various things that we are involved in over on our website at nthuntpodcast.com. And while you're at it, go ahead and head on over to tuckerdspress.com. Why, you might ask? Well, to pre-order our book called National Treasure Hunt, One Step Short of Crazy. Yes. So if you are a new newcomer to the show, we uh, we do more than a podcast these days. Uh, we got that book coming out in April and we host a tour. More info on that very, very soon. Stay tuned. Um, so before we dive into today's episode, we do have to uh, kind of go through one more formality, right, Em? I mean, we have to indoctrinate our new listeners to our screams from Parkington Lane. Is that a splat? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So our screams from Parkington Lane is the way we like to open up every episode of National Treasure Hunt. Uh, You know how people say when they're really, really in-depth involved with something, they've sort of fallen into a pit or the depths of that topic? Well, it turns out that there's a a pretty deep pit in the National Treasure franchise called the Parkington Lane Pit. And our screams from Parkington Lane are... Our acknowledgement that National Treasure has taken over our daily lives and pops up in places that it probably shouldn't. So, Emily, I I think today's the day we issue one of our joint screams. How do you feel about that? I feel like we've been holding on to this one for a little while now. So I feel like it's about time. It's like the day to do it based on what this episode is going to be. So this is a quick story time. Um, Last year, in 2022... Uh, Not long after it was first publicly announced that Justin Bartha would be reprising his role as Riley Poole in an episode of National Treasure Edge of History, um, we, well, I, I don't want to implicate Emily here, was freaking out um, because we didn't know what that meant for the movie, all this fun stuff. And lo and behold, one day um, I got an email. I got an email from our friend Marianne Wibberley who you all know as one of the showrunners of Edge of History and one of the screenwriters uh, from the National Treasure films. And she was like, hey, I know you and Emily know the audience for this series, and I know you know these movies. How should we refer back to Riley? Like, what scenes from the movies are most memorable? Because we kind of need to use some for the show. And... I immediately call Emily. Yes, you did immediately call me. Um, I was stunned, as old listeners know, and new listeners will still find out. uh, I stan Riley Poole. Um, He is my favorite. So being able to, or, you know, being contacted about our opinions and thoughts uh, about Riley and you know, our memories of him and stuff like that uh, was a very surreal moment. Yeah. I I think surreal is a really good way of putting it. So we were on the phone for like a good 20 minutes being like, how do we answer this question? Like every Riley moment is memorable in its own way. We ended up sending in response um, several bullet points <laughs> kind of saying like, hey, 
we don't know how you plan to use him yet, but like if you are just trying to introduce him as a character, consider this scene. Um, if you are trying to refer to his like tech savviness, if that's a role he's going to play in the show, use this scene. If um, you want his most memorable line or his funniest line, consider one of these. And so we sent them back and um, had our own little moment of input on the show. And we kept it kind of quiet because, um, well, I don't know, kind of disbelief that it even happened. Yeah, it to this day, you know, I, I tend to forget about it from time to time. And then when I remember, it feels like that definitely didn't happen. Well, I feel like the reason for holding on to that scream until today is because, of course, one of the episodes that we'll be talking about today was the quote unquote Riley episode of Edge of History. Um, so it was now or never. So y'all got the scream and now you know. Um, and with that, I think that's a perfect segue into this episode itself. I mean, I do want to start by giving a couple of caveats. This is going to be a little bit longer of an episode, y'all. I mean, we have five 50-minute episodes of TV show to cover. That's automatically a lot. Um, And, you know, we could easily spend an entire podcast episode talking about each show episode individually we're not going to do that or else that's all we'd be talking about this season uh we're not going to go as granular at this stage as we could because as frequent listeners know we will spend episodes in the future diving into historical points diving into ethical points diving into music so we're doing the overarching picture today we need to give the summary especially for anyone who's not actually watching the show in real time so that everyone here is on the same page but we also want to give our immediate thoughts and reactions because, well, we like to think we have good thoughts and reactions. Um, and that also being said, <laughs> Emily and I have largely avoided discussing those thoughts with each other. So this is going to be a surprise for everyone involved. Very true. I'm very excited about it. <laughs> so for those of you who are familiar with our back catalog, this is effectively episode one or episode 11 of our entire podcast catalog. It's our recap and commentary, just like we did for National Treasure, just like we did for Book of Secrets, but for the first half of the first season of the show. So what we're going to do is we're going to just sequentially progress through each episode, really highlighting the key points that are going to be necessary so that you can understand later episodes and pointing out some things big or small that we like or don't like and maybe a little bit of why so are you ready emily i've never been more ready for anything in my life this is gonna be a marathon deep breath deep breath indeed all right so let's begin with episode number one titled i'm a ghost and before we start i already have a thought emily or more maybe this is like a mini scream the number of times I've watched this episode. <laughs> it's been a lot. It's so many and I'm so ready to not watch this episode for a minute. Yeah, just like a little break. So we watched the screener. We watched it at the premiere. We watched it the day it came out on Disney Plus for a Discord watch party. And I just watched it again to prepare for this episode. And I am very ready to leave this particular episode in the rearview mirror for just a hot second. Yeah, I am too. But we gotta talk about it. So, how do we begin? 
Well, we begin with a flashback of sorts because we are in the year 2001, which I just have to point out is before the timeline of the first movie, by the way. We are introduced to a much younger Agent Sadesky. This is his big special episode. He is recording himself. Who for? We have no idea who he is directing this to, even though he's clearly talking to someone. He says, remember the treasure I told you about? And he is telling whoever's on the other end of this recording um, about the legend of gold from Montezuma's palaces that conquistadors were looking for upon Cortez's arrival in the New World. Now, According to Sadusky, in 2001, Freemasons recently got proof that a secret network of indigenous Mesoamerican women actually took the treasure that had been apparently amassed by surrounding empires for centuries. I have questions about that, but they took the treasure and they took it away so that Cortez couldn't find it. Now we learn later, I'm going to start pushing things together so that this all makes sense for everyone. We learn later that these women treasure protectors were called the Daughters of the Plumed Serpent. Now, the women, apparently very Templar treasure-esque, they hid the treasure and then hid clues to its whereabouts. And those clues are in the form of three boxes. They keep calling them relics, um, but they are basically, I would say, like six-inch cubes um, and distributed one to the Inca one to the Maya, and one to the Aztecs. Now, the relics were lost to time. That's important here. What's more important to me as a critical viewer is the fact that one woman from each civilization is portrayed holding the box, and they're all pictured together. So I am very curious as to how, if at all, they're going to justify having these civilizations be contemporaneous with each other. That word means, like, timely, right? Like, at the same time. Yeah, yeah. In the same place at the same time. Mm. And something tells me they're not going to address that. The reason I say that is because later on in, I think it was this episode, if not the next one, they do acknowledge how these civilizations weren't in the same location and how they weren't friends. But they don't say anything about the timing. Yeah, I I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I would say we definitely less so and less prominently in the beginning of the National Treasure films, but we we definitely did get some kind of questionable timing. More in National Treasure 2, I feel like there were some questionable timing things, but it was like very minor and not like a huge plot detail. And this feels like this is the main plot detail. Um, So, yeah, a little questionable, but you know. (laughs) see what happens i mean we still have half a season to go um but spoiler alert through five episodes it has not been addressed (laughs) um so again in 2001 uh, sadesky says that a group of treasure hunters were confirmed to be en route to the aztec relic um and i immediately have another question because sadesky says he knows this because it was confirmed by a spy within this treasure hunting group and i'm like who is this spy um at the same time in another part of the world mexico specifically um jess valenzuela our main character or who will be our main character her father rafael finds the Aztec relic 
So he's clearly part of this treasure hunting group um, in a church in Mexico City. And he is attacked by these men who work for someone named Salazar. And we are led to believe that Raphael was killed, uh, basically in the process of multiple attacks. And that Jess, who was a baby at the time, and her mother escape from Mexico and move to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where we are in 2022 slash the present day basically we meet jess and her friends for the first time as they try to escape from an escape room i will say this was very clever because of the fact that the first image you see is them seemingly in prison with like prison outfits on and you're just kind of like what what where are we jumping into here? And then they explain it away very quickly. But it did lead to a lot of speculation before uh, the series <laughs> came out. It's a, a very good point. Um, I'm wondering if at any point we're going to get a, someone's got to go to prison, Jess. I will I will lose my mind if we do, in a bad way. Anyway, um, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, as Jess and her friends are in this escape room, we simultaneously meet our villain, Billy who is in Spain at the time, and she is looking for the Aztec relic at some Spanish estate. Now, immediately we get our first national treasure parallel. Did you catch this, Emily? Oh, yeah. That was fairly obvious to me. Oh, okay. So this is, to me, what I'm about to describe was one of the more subtle parallels. Um, I mean, I liked it. What this is, to me, is a great parallel because it's just subtle enough. Everything else, the parallels are just going to be... What is what is parallel on steroids? Like on top of each other? I don't know. What is I don't know. That's Aubrey's opinion. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll hear get... a little more about Emily's opinion. Just a little more, because we're gonna have a conversation about parallels versus hints versus Easter eggs on a future episode. Of our podcast, yes. Um so anyway, the first parallel we do get, a more subtle one, um, is we see Billy. Billy is sledgehammering basically into a wall uh, a random wall in this seemingly historic building um and i mean this is basically breaking into the parkinson lane crypt um luckily nobody fell down into the hole but um Basically, the relic's not there. Well, nobody fell down into a pit because all she did was open a wall. Fair enough. <laughs> um, they did all this work. The relic's not there. But we learned that Billy is working for someone who happens to be an American. Yeah, so we don't know who that is yet. But soon, I guess, we will. So we're back in the States. Uh, we learn that Jess uh, works at a storage facility and is basically challenged by her boss to figure out who owns a unit of the storage facility that has been abandoned. It's filled with all this Freemason stuff, and the person's name who's sort of on the rental form is Eum Phasma, which Jess immediately realizes is Latin, basically, for I am a ghost. And 
Jess like awkwardly tells her boss that she wants to work in the cryptanalysis department at the FBI and that's why she's like good at solving puzzles or that's the justification. In this specific example, I think so this is really our first example of clue slash like puzzle solving that we see in in the series. So I think that's part of the reason why I was willing to kind of like give it a pass. But to me, this was one of the more like believable mm, ones because like presumably Jess knows Latin because she wants to work in the cryptanalysis department of the FBI. So she maybe is trying to study for that. I know that that seems a little unlikely, but we had to make those kinds of jumps with Ben sometimes too. So I feel like it's, it's feasible, but honestly it, it, it felt to me like one of the more realistic clue solving situations compared to like some of the other ones we're going to get. I completely agree. I thought I didn't have any issues with the clue solving here. I had more of an issue with how she's now suddenly telling her career goals to this boss that she hates in a very awkward way. Um, I assumed that needed to happen so that we understood why she knew Latin, but I might be wrong. I don't know. Oh, that actually might help. That might help. Okay. Anyway, at this point, we get our first look at the opening credits. I am pointing this out because it's very different than anything we've seen National Treasure related before. It's basically uh, a map with a lot of symbols and relics, and it has something that Emily really likes overlaid on top of it, Em. It has the National Treasure theme music um, there. Like, there, it, it's there. It, it sounds like the themes, and I've, I now listen to the credit music relatively frequently and um, can tell you that they start out with a more national treasure theme move into to a more, I guess, what we're supposed to interpret as Mesoamerican theme. We have a lot of guitar that, you know, sounds a little little stereotypically Mexican. Uh, I, you know, I think it, it's not a Marachi band. Uh, so I think we are we we are drawing the line somewhere, but this is kind of similar to some of the analysis I had of the National Treasure 2 music with the wooden flute um, being representative of Native American cultures. Anyway, after that, we transition like back to kind of a the musical theme from the National Treasure movies, which is really exciting for me. And it's really nice. And then we go back to the show. <laughs> well, that will be the last time we talk specifically about the... Uh intro title card um and we're back to jess she is going to solve the mystery of who is em phasma by using google to learn that there are over 19,000 freemasons in louisiana and um she just we learned that she just so happened to like take with her from the storage unit a freemason gavel and a folded military burial flag we do love when things happen specifically for plot <laughs> yeah, we'll see. You'll see in a second why that whole comment is even necessary. Um, she ultimately narrows down her Google search results to Freemasons that are related to a deceased veteran because of that folded burial flag. And she reads off of the screen, quote, silver medal recipient Jack Sadusky died in a diving accident. Of course, Everyone here who has watched National Treasure before knows that this is the son of Agent Sadusky. You only know that because you're assuming it, but you would be correct. And diving. Ben does that. A diving accident. There's actually, a little Easter egg there. And there's something later that, that gets really interesting. I don't know if you picked up on this, M with Billy and um, her I, henchmen. I picked up on it when I read the outline. <laughs> For the episode? Yeah. 
Okay, we'll get to that. Um, So Jess ends up going to Sadowski's house. It's very convenient that he retired to Baton Rouge and learns that Sadowski has dementia and thinks everyone is a spy. She basically tries to tell him he's got to either clear out his storage unit or pay for his storage unit or all of his stuff's going to get trashed. Um, Sadowski, we meet now as an old man. And it's very clear to me that he doesn't have dementia. Am I the only one who thinks that? I feel like he could have. I I definitely didn't get the impression that he definitely didn't have dementia. But I feel like a lot of the things he was talking about were things that he probably would have been talking about before having dementia. Like that people were spies and stuff. So like i don't think it's really conclusive to say just because he's talking about spies he's got dementia you know that's the thing i the justification that was given by like his live-in nurse was that he thinks everyone's a spy and he thinks there's a treasure and like oh my god he has dementia but as soon as he starts talking to jess he sounds like the old sadusky to me he sounds all there he sounds like everyone is just like thinking he's crazy because he thinks there's a treasure um he's immediately impressed that jess tracked him down figured out the em phasma clue um, and she tells him about how she wants to work for the FBI. She can't do it until she's an American citizen. You know, I will say this. It felt a little awkward to me throwing this in like right here. I guess it makes sense because FBI she's talking to him. He worked for the FBI, but it does help to me at least introduce the stakes of everything that Jess is going to do in this episode and the ones that follow. So it's kind of like, let's get that information in there. Mm -hmm. We do need to know that early on. Um, So Sadowski notices that Jess is wearing basically the medallion necklace that is characteristic of the daughters of the plumed serpent. And we learn that this necklace belonged to her father, Raphael. Um, Jess, of course, was a baby when he presumably died. So she has not met him. And she only knows that apparently her mom thinks he was a a useless, good-for-nothing guy. Um. There was a, a line here where Sadusky is trying to explain to Jess that the purpose of this necklace, it's like the necklace of this treasure protecting band of people. And the whole idea is people who did what was considered wrong in order to do what they knew was right. And therefore, if this was her dad's necklace, he was one of those people. Um, Sadusky makes a passing comment that he knew a lot of people like that. Ben Gates. And, of course, Raphael must have been one of them. Now, part of this scene is, of course, Jess being really skeptical. Because, remember, she's told this guy has dementia. So she's like, oh, this guy's crazy. Um, And so to kind of prove that he's all there and that he's not crazy, but he ends up only making her more skeptical, Sadusky starts just, like, rattling off Mesoamerican historical facts as basically exposition, things that have nothing to do with the story here to prove that he knows about the treasure. And um, to me, this is like one of the more annoying uses of history in the show. And this happens a lot in the show where they're using history as like throwaway comments just to say they're throwing in history. Did you mm-hmm. get that? Like, I, this is going to be a recurring theme. Uh, yeah, I understand where you're coming from. I think I interpreted this as a kind of like a sign uh, early in the series that seems to be kind of popping back up that Sadusky is clearly very invested in like treasure hunts and has been kind of like researching 
the history of this stuff for years now. So, like, it wasn't just exclusive to the Templar treasure or Cibola. So I think that, yes, it was a bit, like, shoehorned pieces of history in there, but I think you could also technically interpret it as, you know, trying to paint this picture of Sadowski, but I, I realize that's a bit of a stretch. No, I mean, that's fair. And I would probably agree with you if this sort of use of history didn't keep happening. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. Um, at this point, Jess is completely convinced that this guy has dementia and doesn't know what he's saying when he tries to give her a clue, an envelope that's meant for his grandson, Liam. Now, Liam apparently doesn't want to see his grandfather because Liam's dad died looking for the treasure. We learn that a little bit later. But... um Jess is being given this envelope to Liam and she's like, this does not belong to me. I do not want this. So she leaves. Um, turns out that Billy, our villain, has been monitoring Sadusky's house this whole time. She knows he knows something about this treasure. So Billy sees Jess enter and exit and this puts Jess on Billy's radar. The next day, we learn, oh my gosh, who died? But Sadusky? Oh my god. Like, I, I literally just got, like, heart flutters again. This is the fifth time I'm talking about this. I still have heart flutters. Yeah, he he's he's dead. Uh, so that happened. But what his death allows for plot-wise is uh, <laughs> Billy's henchmen basically to pose as FBI agents and go through Sadusky's storage unit. Uh, Jess is there because she works there and she can tell immediately that they are not real FBI agents. So she doesn't really give them any of the information they're kind of asking her for, even though they threaten her with her citizenship status. Yeah. I mean, she, like I said, she knew that they were not real FBI agents. So she, she must've been be confident about that. Um, the fake agents tell her that Sadusky retired from the FBI in 2007, which doesn't seem like a lie, even though they're lying about a lot of stuff. Um, but it is interesting just for like us to kind of think about what the implications of that might be. Because 2007 was the year of Book of Secrets. And like, right. So, so was it like right after that? that yeah. He retired? Who knows? Yeah. I mean, we do learn later that maybe he was unceremoniously let go. But I do think it's around this time. So it's very interesting. Um, Jess, she's already tracked down one person using the internet. Why not track down another? So she finds Liam on Instagram, Sadusky's grandson. And she tries giving him this letter, um, which ends up being a photograph. It's a photograph of um, Sadusky and his son and presumably Liam, I guess, the three of them together in the Masonic mm -hmm. Temple in Baton Rouge. And it turns out that Liam is a singer. And <laughs> this show's not going to let us forget that. And he's currently a singer at a bar. He will end up singing in just about every episode. And he is very adamant about not taking the photo from Jess because he just really hates his grandfather. Now, here comes one of our first instances that I suspect, Emily, you might agree with me, is like a maybe a questionable clue solve. For some reason, Jess looks at the photo and she really hones in on the fact that Sadusky is holding that gavel she took from his storage unit in the picture. And she decides that this gavel is a clue. 
So she and her roommate and friend Tasha, I realize we haven't said all the friends' names yet, <laughs> they go to Sadusky's Masonic Lodge to stand in the same room that the photo was taken. En route to the Masonic Lodge, by the way, we have another instance of this like historical spit firing of just like throwing history facts in there to say that we have them. And this is where I really started to get annoyed by this. Like, uh, did you notice, Em, when they're trying to escape the fake feds again who are chasing them? Um, they start basically spouting off facts about Hamilton the musical and Abigail Adams' relationship with history. Like, that was unnecessary. Yeah, I did notice that. I can see from the perspective of history spit firing why that would be bothersome. I actually interpret it, oddly enough, as an interesting use of some more recent examples of, like, history that's been explained through pop culture, because they were talking about the musical Hamilton, and, like, that's what National Treasure was, you know, mm. back in the day. It well, was meta. pop culture explaining history, so it's cool that they're referencing that kind of same thing in the show. Some a meta moment i guess uh so once they get into the lodge jess decides she has to go stand in the place that sadusky was standing and hold the gavel in the same position that sadusky holds it and she learns that this positioning makes the light reflect off of the gavel and hit an altar uh so she's like the clue is the altar so she goes over to the altar there are stars on the altar only one of the stars is shaped differently than the rest and it's shaped in the same star pattern that's at the bottom of the gavel. She puts the gavel in the slot. She turns it. And she decides the reflection of, like, whatever is in the reflection of the gavel, that's the clue. And what's in the reflection, it's like this pillar that's sort of in the background. It's shaped like a globe. She climbs up. She opens the globe. And what do you know? It's the Aztec relic. We got this there is... very quickly. <laughs> So did she. No, no, no. I meant like in like in the context of the show. Oh. We got to the first thing very quickly. <laughs> this is all so ridiculous to me. Like, I had to rewatch that scene multiple times to make sure I wasn't missing something. And I wasn't. It just was what I just described, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's annoying that there's no real, like, history that's involved in this part of the clue-solving thing. Although it's really interesting to think that Sadusky, like, because presumably, right, if we're attributing all this to Sadusky, he may have hidden these things in a way such that, like, it had to be a series of kind of, like, random instances that occurred uh, so that they somebody would find it like somewhat by chance it definitely could be a smart move for like in in real life treasure hunting um but i it, it's not very national treasure not at all the whole vibe of the movies is using history to solve puzzles and this doesn't have that at all it doesn't. Does anyone else, though, feel like this was a subtle, less historically grounded version of the shadow of the Independence Hall Tower uh, landing on the stone in National Treasure that uh, Ben and co. needed to remove in order to get Ben's Franklin's Ben Franklin's glasses? I didn't see that at all. <laughs> okay. I thought because it was light shining on a thing. There's also a scene in Indiana Jones 
that I think we talked about on a past episode that's similar where light is shining on a specific thing. So I, I just interpreted yeah. the, the light thing being. I, the only, I mean, this is a stretch, but it, to me, it was a little bit like the Meerschaum pipe in the wall in, the, uh, in Parkington Lane mm. where they put it into the slot and then turn it. Maybe it's a combination of both. Or maybe we're totally like blowing this out of proportion. <laughs> That's what we do here. Oh, it's li- literally what we do here. Um, okay, good, good chat. Good talk. Um, so the obsidian box, that's the Aztec box. It's made of obsidian. It's black in color. It looks stone of some sort. It just so happens to also have the symbol from Jess's necklace on it. And so Jess is suddenly all in on the treasure hunt because she wants to understand her dad's history. Um, basically, the fact that she found this and the symbols match up, this means to her, there's something about my dad I don't know. I need to figure it out. This change of heart for her was so sudden it actually gave me mitch vibes like mitch in the cibola drowning room like how he switches on a whim like from one perspective to another i was like five seconds ago you wanted nothing to do this and now all of a sudden you are in did i don't know maybe that was just me no no i i I, yeah i understand that jess's friends um pretty much all of them but especially her friend ethan who's sort of the more responsible lawyery one they're all constantly reminding her that she could get in a lot of trouble by going through this treasure hunt. Why? She has DACA and she could get deported if in the course of this treasure hunt, she gets in legal trouble, she gets arrested, something like that. Yeah, so I will I will say that, especially the number of times that Ethan really hammers this home, uh, does feel quite heavy handed. Uh, but I think in order to set up the stakes of the show, it, it is a nice kind of reminder of Jess's predicament. Yeah. Well, there's a predicament immediately because Billy, who has been monitoring Jess now and is like, why did Sadusky tell her something? Sadusky must have told her something. Billy kidnaps one of Jess's other friends, our favorite character, Orin. I'm 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 totally asserting that for both of us. I'm assuming yes. he's both of our favorites. It's true. Um, Orin is sort of the very Gen Z, very into Instagram, very into like fancy sneakers, a little selfish kind of guy, but he's hilarious. So Billy very easily kidnaps Orin by putting sneakers into like a shipping container and luring him in for all intents and purposes. And Billy threatens to kill Orin if Jess doesn't turn over the Aztec relic. Now the episode ends with uh, what I think they call a tag <laughs> in in TV world. Um, so we kind of flash to a completely different scene to end the episode. It's taking place at a prison in Mexico City. There's a prisoner named Salazar who purports to maybe be planning an escape. He's drawing a picture of the symbol from Jess's necklace and tacking it up onto the wall with what seems like a bunch of clues or notes or things like that. And it's meant to be very dark and oppressive and scary. And that's the end of our episode. So, Emily, I'd love to maybe hear quickly your thoughts and share my own about the first episode. Um, Do you want to start? Sure. 
So overall, I'm here for the National Treasure Connections. We we always knew that was going to be the case for me. Uh, Sadusky's inclusion and his relationship to Liam, I think, was a clever transition to the new spinoff of the franchise. I think a lot of us from the beginning just thought, like, we were just going to be starting with Jess and she was going to be another person. But the fact that there's some amount of lineage connecting, I think, is pretty cool. Um, I did dislike the moments when Jess was talking to herself out loud um specifically in the scene that you uh were saying that uh is not historically based that we we really don't like that much with the gavel and the Masonic Lodge um it's it's an issue I have in general narratively I understand why it had to happen but it still bothered me um and also in general I'm just digging the characters so far yeah, for me, the strength at this point is some of the characters. Um, I, I think that the side characters in particular, um, Tasha and Oren, to me, give me a spinoff show of just them. I would be super happy. They are such gems, and I think they're underutilized so far. We'll see what happens in the rest of the season. But I do feel, and this could just be the show getting its sea legs and the actors getting their sea legs in this opportunity, I felt like the acting was a little bit wooden and a little cringy here and there um, in this first episode. As mentioned, I am already taking a little bit of an issue with how history is being used so far. It will change a little bit as we go through some of these other episodes and in this conversation today. Um, and I do want to point out one more thing. I don't know if you remember this, Emily. We did watch the screener for this episode um, back before, months ago at this point um, in prep for our interview with the Wibberleys. And there was a scene at the end of the screener. It was I, either- It was like this, a post credit scene. Yeah, like at the end of this episode or episode two, I don't remember. It was cut out. And it revealed a pretty big thing. Um, I don't know if you remember. We're not going to mention it here. Oh, I know. Okay. It revealed a pretty big thing. And if I remember when it actually does come up, it's it's in the second half of the season. I'll mention it so that we can like point out where that little change was made. And we could maybe talk about why that change might have been made. But um, Sounds good. Fun fact there. Fun fact. Let's move on because we have so many more to cover for all of you to episode two entitled The Treasure Map. All right. So the treasure map begins with Jess and Tasha trying to arrange for an like a ransom exchange with Billy. They have to exchange the relic for Orin. Um, and they try to arrange that exchange at the gift shop of the USS Kid. A little bit of a callback there uh, to the USS Intrepid, a little nod there. This is the kind of parallel I really like, a subtle nod. Um, now, why the USS Kid? Well, Jess apparently used to work there, and she knows that there's an armed ranger stationed on guard in the gift shop, so like Billy can't pull a gun on them without someone seeing. Yeah, I have to say that the, the whole idea of kind of meeting on a ship-type thing... Um, with the villain protagonist meeting in like a very social setting and stuff like that it the parallel did it made me very giddy that was a good one uh, so just before they get there to the uss kid just pretty much decides unilaterally even though tasha really doesn't want to uh that they are collectively going to go to the fbi about this problem there's apparently a 
massive FBI office in Baton Rouge, also convenient, they are assigned to give their story to Agent Ross. Agent Ross is going to be a recurring character. She is a new-ish agent that was just assigned to the Baton Rouge field office. Um, but Jess and Tasha's story about a kidnapping and a treasure and the possible murder of Sadusky, oh my gosh, it sounds so crazy that Ross immediately dismisses them. In part because they aren't willing to file a formal report because of Tasha's distrust of um, uh, law enforcement, basically. And I just want to know, am I the only one who's bothered by the fact that we don't know Agent Ross's first name? I literally did not realize that I've been calling her Lyndon <laughs> in my head because that's the actress's first name. I love that. Oh my gosh, that's so funny too because the actress Lyndon's last name is Ross and I've been sort of switching around their last names because Ross and Smith are like both super common, you know? Sorry, I said that backwards. You did. I literally just did it. I literally just did it. Okay. <laughs> it, it's so funny because Lyndon's real last name is Smith and I keep mixing up Smith and Ross because they're both really common last names. You're, I, maybe we can just call her Lyndon, Agent Lyndon Ross. I don't know. <laughs> Let's combine the names. Um, does this, I don't know, this scene to me where they go to the FBI, I feel like gives the national treasure, FBI, Homeland Security, and archives visit, you know, for Ben and Briley to tell people the declaration is going to be stolen because there's a treasure map on it. Um, I liked this. I totally get the parallel. I didn't like it because of the delivery. Here's the thing. Ben and Riley knew what they were saying was ridiculous. Remember all the facial expressions like, ugh, that's where we lost the FBI. That's where we lost Department of Homeland. You know, and then the whole sigh, like, it's invisible. Thank you very much for your time. Like that whole thing. Like they knew it. Tasha and, and Jess, they're not getting it. They they start to get it as like it continues and they see Agent Lyndon Agent Lyndon Ross's reaction, um, but like yeah they're definitely going into it uh, understandably because they're afraid for their friend's life with a little less yeah. like intention behind things. But yes, I totally agree with that. Um. So okay. Yeah, we're glad we're on the same page. Now we're on the bus because we decided to abandon the FBI plan. Didn't work out. So Jess and Tasha are on the bus going to the USS Kid. And Jess decides that the relic is actually a puzzle box. And in exactly two tries, she comes up with a ridiculous story about the symbols on the puzzle box. Um, and that story ends up being correct about the orientation of the puzzle box pieces, and it opens the box. And if you couldn't tell, I hated this scene so much. And I don't feel bad saying that at all. There was no history mm. involved in the puzzle box solving. And it's just, it was completely impossible. Like, part of it is like, oh, there's a bunny. The bunny's in the sun. And where does the bunny go to escape the sun? The briar patch. And you're supposed to look at these symbols and think briar patch. I'm like, I don't even know what a briar patch is. What does it look like? How it's am a I supposed briar, to know? briar, Aubrey. Oh my gosh. I just, it, and, and what bothers me the most about this, and I wanted to like it because Puzzle Box is a great nod to the Resolute Desks, right? But I couldn't because this whole problem could have been so easily fixed by making the box's combination historically based. Yeah. Uh, I think not going for the history there was a swing and a miss. Also, how the f did she figure it out? <laughs> uh, I've seen it three or four times now, and it still makes 
it, it makes no sense to me. Um, I could have easily come up with a story for what I interpreted the symbols on the puzzle box to be and come up with a different combination and it would not have opened. So I don't know. I I just, oh man. Okay. Again, we're on the same page. This is wonderful. Who knew? The puzzle box opens and it turns out that the six sides of the puzzle box, the interior sides are pieces of a map, but they don't match up. Um, because presumably the other two boxes have the rest of the pieces of the map. So Jess and Tasha take pictures of the map pieces, and when they get to the gift shop, Jess does a very dumb thing and puts a keychain into the puzzle box because she wants to hand the box to Billy and have Billy go out the door and have like the security alarms go off because she's stealing whatever was in the box and have her get arrested. And this ends up being super dumb because it effectively ends up telling Billy once the exchange happens. And of course she's going to get away because like she's, she just has to hand off the box to her friend and her friend leaves. And like, it's, it's ridiculous. So once they actually leave the shop and Billy like looks at like, she ends up using effectively uh, like a device that images the box and like sees the keychain inside. But I would argue she could have just shook the box to know that now there's something inside and that just tells her that the box opens yeah i agree this was a very naive move of jess possibly it was supposed to be in the sense that jess is still fairly young and as a neuroscientist i can say that her prefrontal cortex uh involved in decision making is not fully developed but yeah it was it was dumb (laughs) okay so their last ditch effort, this has also annoyed me a little bit, as um, they're about to let Billy go, even though the alarm went off when she tried walking out the door, they just kind of blurt out, she kidnapped our friend, you know? And and the security guard's like, is this true? And it's like, what is going on here? Basically, the reason I mention this at all, because this is something I would ordinarily skip over, Oren says that he was not kidnapped because basically the henchman told Oren we know everything about you and your friends. We will kill you. And for some reason, Oren telling this to Jess and Tasha was a huge ast- astonishment. And that was a little weird to me. Like, I don't know why that was such a... I mean, she's, they're the bad guys. They kidnapped someone. The fact that she, she could equally murder them, I don't know why that was so surprising. Um, Jess does not know what to do next. So she goes back to Sadusky's house and just kind of walks in because normal... Um, she finds Sadusky's Masonic ring that we know and love from the end of the first National Treasure movie. And I want to know, is that the same ring from the same props department? Probably not. Oh, I want that ring. Um, (laughs) while in the house, she encounters Liam there because Sadusky left Liam the house in his will. And Liam very much has the whole one clue leads to the other mentality. It's very Patrick of him. It is. I mean, I do also think the one clue leads to another mentality in the terms of a treasure hunt is the correct mentality. I I feel like most people have that mentality. He's just taking a negative kind of approach on it. Um, Anyway, we then jump back to FBI agent Lyndon Ross, uh she this is, is this is totally our new professor helen oh yeah Mirren. it's yeah. it's professor dr dr helen mirren <laughs> that one um so ross is looking up peter sadusky and you know requests some files about him which it turns out were like all redacted um 
you do see certain words. So you see like Declaration of Independence in a non-redacted part, um, which, you know, nice, nice nod. Um, also, we forgot to mention this before, um, but in the first episode, we actually see that her boss is none other than Agent Hendricks, same actor who is the guy who ignored Ben's tip to the FBI about the Declaration of Independence being stolen. Uh, Hendricks then, you know, comes in and is starting to question Agent Lyndon Ross about why she's ordering a tox report for Sadowski and about his death and tries to basically get her to, like, stop doing what she's doing. Um, And his rationale is that Sadowski was an American hero, right? But he gives us some interesting information. He said, you know, Sadowski's son died, and after that, he was never really the same. Um, they do mention, or Hendricks does mention, that eventually uh, Agent Sadowski was dismissed from the FBI. So now we know that that's why he, quote-unquote, retired. Um, and in the last decade of his life, you know, obviously we all know he's fought dementia and, you know, kick the bucket in his sleep so Hendrix is basically because he's saying to agent ross like let's let him leave this this earthly plane with some dignity yeah so back to jess this is a tv show so we jump around a lot more um jess is doing some research and she learns that the symbol on her necklace is aztec and of course that symbol was on the box but there were other symbols on the box and those might have been Mayan and Incan and here's that scene I was talking about right at the beginning she says this is confusing because the civilizations quote weren't friends and the Incans were quote way south so this is the part where it would have made sense to address the non-contemporaneousness if they were going to but they don't and I feel felt the need to just mention that um now we're back to our friend Liam, who is back to Agent Sadusky's house. Liam is with his mom, and they're kind of cleaning out the house. Um, Liam's mom compares her son to her son's father. So Sadusky's son, Jack, silver medal guy, the one who died on the treasure hunt. Um, and I thought the only reason I'm mentioning this is this idea of... Um, similarities between two members of a family who are fundamentally so opposed at odds um, with their belief system. So Liam's mom thinks that Liam is going all in on this unattainable dream of music. And it's just like his father because his father went all in on this unattainable dream of treasure hunting. Now that I mentioned that not only do I think that's interesting to compare to Ben and Patrick later on, um, but I think Liam is also going to have a a moment where that sentiment resonates with him a little bit later. Um, Jess, in the meantime, she, uh, she gets fired from her job at the storage company. So she gets a job at the bar where Liam works and um, she sees Liam at the bar who just got fired as the musician because no one really cared to listen to him. And um, this for some reason makes Liam decide to work with Jess on the treasure hunt. Um, He basically says, you know, Jess coming out of the blue is a sign that he's supposed to finish what his dad started, just like Jess is finishing what her dad started. And this is what I like to call another random Mitch change of heart moment. Yeah, it was very fast. I mean, I, I I can vibe with the family motivation here. Like, that's very National Treasure, at least. 
Yeah. Um. So I they go from the bar, then back to Sadusky's house. We're really just jumping around everywhere here. Liam shows Jess how the bookcase that's in Sadusky's study actually opens into a clue room. We love a good, you know, fake bookcase situation. <laughs> um. In this clue room, we have. Things such as the Meerschaum pipe, the ocular device, and the Olmec plank, all featured in National Treasure 1 and 2. Um, Jess asks if all the stuff in the room has to do with the same treasure, because she, unlike us, hasn't seen National Treasure a bunch of times. (laughs) And Liam basically confirms this. Um, And my question is, why does Sadusky have these things? That's a very good question. There's absolutely no way he should have them. Um, my question is, if Liam says all the stuff in the room has to do with the same treasure, and there's stuff from the Templar treasure, from Cibola, and now from this new treasure all in the same room, are they going to somehow tie the Templar treasure into this show too? Instead of just, we know they're, they're going to end up tying in Cibola, we'll get there in a minute. But like, are they going to put all the treasures together somehow? Hmm. Interesting. So in this clue room, Liam points out the unpublished academic paper that his dad used to sort of inspire and guide his treasure hunt. And it turns out, plot twist, it was written by Jess's mom, Manuela Valenzuela. And this was a huge surprise, of course, because Jess's mom never mentioned anything treasure related to her. And also, Jess's mom seem to think that Jess's dad was a good-for-nothing for searching for the treasure. So, impressions time. Overall, um, I I liked this episode, um, but I still cannot get over the puzzle box solving, and I'm still wondering how they're going to explain the three civilizations bit. Um, to me, the best part of the episode was obviously the part about Jess's mom at the end. Yeah, I I agree with you for the most part. I thought this one was good. There were definitely some odd moments, uh, but I'm I'm hoping things are explained at a later point in time or like fixed as everyone kind of gets into their characters a bit more. Um, I also loved the part with Jess's mom at the end. Well, and as we're about to get into the the next episode title in just a second, can I just say they could be doing a better job at naming these episodes? Now, see, I like the titles here. I like that they're very literal, but I think that's probably why I don't name the podcast episodes. <laughs> Touche. Well, that leads us to episode three called Graceland Gambit. All right. You ready to do this, Em? Let's go. Apparently in the clue room, they found like a video and they somehow have the technology to watch and old home movie video. I wouldn't know how to do that today. And it turns out that the video is of Jess's mom giving her like thesis defense, her dissertation presentation. Yeah. I mean, as to have them just like finding the video in the clue room, I feel like there was a cut scene somewhere that we didn't get to see um, because they definitely had time to film something for that. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, you're probably right. Actually, I wouldn't be surprised about that at all. Okay, so next I'm going to go through what 
her mom says in the in the thesis defense. So this is going to be a little dense, but I think it's important. So basically, Jess's mom is presenting that before the Europeans arrived in the Americas, independent indigenous tribes um, throughout the Americas used art and textiles to preserve their culture. Now, during the war, like the all the battles with the conquistadors, some of those indigenous women left the region with their artifacts so that their history would would be preserved. Now, over time, quote unquote, their treasure grew. This is something I men- I'm mentioning because I don't understand the implications of this. If the treasure is hidden, I'm not sure why it's growing. Um, one woman in particular risked her life to save the treasure from the conquistadors. And this is a woman named Malinche. And she was an enslaved teenage woman forced to work for Uh, Cortez as a translator. Now, according to Jess's mom, over the next 200 years, Malinche's name was dragged through the what, Emily? Samuel Mudd. (laughs) Just the mud. Just the mud. Um, Because she helped the Spanish. But the secret is, and the, the kind of the thesis to this presentation, Malinche actually used her position to keep tabs on the Spanish while this underground women's network smuggled the treasure away. Now, again, this the rest is what we know. Once hidden, uh, the women created a map to the treasure and broke it into the three boxes. Once the conquistadors were gone, the women's goal was to rejoin the map and find the treasure. But of course, the boxes were lost over time. But this isn't the end of the video um, because in the video now sort of the the thesis evaluation committee a bunch of men male academics very we relate um they kind of jump in and say that manuela's dissertation is wrong because the incan and other mesoamerican civilizations never communicated and that malinche was a traitor to her people or at best a quote-unquote powerless victim uh the video continues. Jess's dad, Raphael, he breaks in to the conversation to defend his wife um, and says, he says that he and his wife will prove the legend is real by finding the treasure. And this is way too on the nose for me. And that whole on the nose vibe is going to continue a lot this episode. It kind of made me cringe a little bit. I mean, at least we now know why Jess's parents went after the treasure? They went after the treasure to prove the dissertation committee wrong? Like, that's some dedication to your PhD. Well, I I feel like, you know, her the story she was telling in her dissertation was probably, you know, she felt very strongly about it. I, I, I know I personally felt very strongly about components of my dissertation by the time I was, you know, presenting it. And I, I don't know that I would go on a treasure hunt for it, but it feels like there's some sort of connection there that kind of made them want to, you know, really delve into this further. So... After Jess and the friends watch this video, um, Liam is convinced that the treasure must be real because Jess has this necklace and the necklace has this symbol and the sketches in Manuela's dissertation presentation, they also have the symbol. This seems like a little bit of a stretch to me, Mm -hmm. Um, but that's that. It's now time for us to jump back to our FBI friends. The only reason I'm mentioning this... um, 
little diversion is because we see Agent Hendricks mentioning to Agent Ross that he didn't act on Ben's tip about stealing the declaration. Um, and we get a little bit of maybe character backstory hint about Agent Lyndon Ross here um, because Hendricks makes a comment like, See, I was I was eager to make up for that, just like you're eager to make up for it. Like, what does she have to make up for is supposed to be the question. Yeah, here I'm really getting vibes of Baton Rouge is the office that the disgraced FBI people go to. Totally. I got the same vibe, but then later in in one next episode, and I don't mind saying this because it's not important, really. But someone tells Hendrix, like, oh, I heard you got a promotion. He's like, yeah, I did promotion (laughs) air quotes for people who can't see because this is not a visual podcast um back to our friends jess and co jess shares with her friends and partially with us the audience a lullaby that her mom used to sing with her which includes the line quote our treasure is safe and jess says that the lullaby passed down the legend of the treasure just in that one line in that one line Oh, yeah, that's really passing out the legend of the treasure. <laughs> and Your now, treasure is safe. That could be that her child is safe. Good point. Their love is safe. A lot of things could be safe. Um, but you know what? You know what, Em? At this point, as of this point, Jess is intent on proving that her mother was right by finding the treasure. Now, I will say... Um, this is starting to push the family motivation for me in, a, in just a bit because it seems like it the, it can't decide what its motivation is. First, it was I need to uh, solve the clues and find the treasure to understand my dad because I never knew my dad. And now it's I need to prove that my mom's dissertation was right. And like I'm going to find the treasure so that my mom's dissertation will be seen as true. That is a little much, but. Yes. Um, I I do think it's interesting, though. I think if you look at the two things individually like that, it does definitely make it seem like they're like not sure what the which familial motivation they're going for. I think it is her dad that was the, the main motivation. And now it's kind of like, wait, but mom was involved. And now it's just kind of like there is a whole family situation dynamic going on that I need to figure out. So to me, it kind of like all bled in together. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty true. Um, so we then get a revelation because Liam mentions that his grandfather, Agent Sadusky, found the Mayan relic made of jade, the jade box, in Cibola. And I'm just going to say that uh, our mid-season episode of National Treasure Hunt will explain this, so get excited. Um, But what happened when Sadusky found this relic? Well, he gave it to his son, Jack, who then died in that diving accident two days later after receiving the box. So obviously this is not a coincidence. Obviously not, but it sounds like we're going to get to go diving. In more ways than one. This is the National Treasure Hunt podcast. We dive into everything. (laughs) See what I did there? Um, Liam says that his grandfather and his dad were also never able to crack this other clue. It's just this random other clue about the third box. And it turns out that just on the wall of the clue room, there's this like clue tacked to the wall. Um, And it was- No one was accessing that clue room. You had to pull the books in a certain way. (laughs) True. The clue read, a message was passed to the Sun King 
born to peace. And you might wonder, like, where did Sadowski get this? Like, fair point. And they just explained that away by saying, like, I guess, I guess they got it from the Freemasons. Yeah, the um, Freemasons are obviously involved in all the treasures. 100% of the treasures. Which, like, I would buy. Yeah, that's not the most far-fetched thing we're getting here. Um, <laughs> we get here a very on-the-nose National Treasure replicated sort of Ben Gates deduction sequence. Um, and it features Jess as well as Ethan and Liam. And I'm going to go through their thought process just so you can sort of see the equivalency to, like, I don't know, Ben Gates solving the Resolute Twins, for example, or or the the clue from the pipe on the Charlotte. So first, they think that Sun King means Louis XIV um, because, oh, Louisiana was named after him. So the message could be in the Louisiana Territory. But they realize it wouldn't make sense for a Native American to give a clue to a random French king. So then Liam chimes in with a very large jump that ends up being correct. He jumps in with the king of rock and roll Elvis because Elvis's record label was called Sun Records and Elvis is the king. And mm-hmm. now we get to some interest. Like I liked this part. Elvis was a Freemason. Um, and we know this because in the show they say, oh, well, Elvis did a secret Freemason handshake when he met President Nixon. And immediately, this is what I love, because I'm like, is that true? And I need to mm-hmm. look into that. And that's very national treasure, a very national treasure hunt. And then we learn that Elvis was Cherokee in of descent. His grandmother was a woman named Morning Dove White. And they're like, oh, doves are symbols of peace. And peace was in the clue. And they say, they literally say, that's why the word peace was capitalized. It's a person. And I audibly cringed. You can't really audibly cringe, but I, I, I tell you, I'm telling you, I audibly cringed. Yeah, um, I really like that both Jess and Liam, and apparently Ethan, who I forgot was involved, uh, got to weigh in on this, um, because mainly kind of Liam was able to. I, I think a lot of times in National Treasure, obviously, I really love the movies, but one of the issues I had was that Ben just had so much historical knowledge about everything, and then like, even when Riley was able to kind of pop in, his knowledge was like still about like american history kind of and i think here what's interesting is that they're giving liam a chance to kind of like bring his perspective into things and demonstrate why like this diversity of perspectives might actually be very important um because he obviously is a musician so like of course he naturally would think of elvis right away um it also feels like kind of like you were saying at the end they're more historical to me in general you know with with the way that they went through everything so i did like this this sequence you know i'm surprised you didn't point out or you didn't realize or or notice with since you said you didn't recognize ethan in the scene they used ethan and liam's contributions to juxtapose the two of them as potential matches for Jess. Because something we haven't mentioned here, probably much to Emily's chagrin, is that there's this like behind the scenes, like will they, won't they love triangle between Jess and Ethan and Liam. And you say behind the scenes. Well, in it this comes episode, to the forefront eventually. It's, it's at this point it's behind the scenes. And the whole part, the whole wrong track clue about louis the 14th that was ethan's contribution Mm -hmm. and then it goes to liam and the elvis and that's the right contribution so like what is that saying about their dynamic and their compatibility um then jess reads from her mom's dissertation that the pueblos and the cherokees were rumored to have helped the daughters of the plume serpent 
Um, so the idea is that Morning Dove White was in contact with the daughter of the plumed serpent. That's where she got a clue. She passed it down to Elvis. And Elvis, here's the rest of the interpretation, he put the clue, they think, on his favorite guitar called the Ebony Dove. And they say, oh, that makes perfect sense. He would hide it on something that would become a museum piece. And that was another little cringe for me because it was like this is verbatim about the declaration and how they would hide the map on something that would be preserved in a museum. Preserved, but also like limited access to. That's a good point. Um, yeah, I, the whole connection with the Daughters of the Plume Serpent thing to me, it, it feels like a stretch. Um, I, I'm assuming eventually it will make more sense just like the daughters of the plume so i'm assuming not in the episodes we've watched but in the end it will make sense i'm hoping it will but uh oh oh well for now that's what we have (laughs) so um they're like okay but like where's the guitar because when you search online it doesn't say that this ebony dove Guitar is part of Graceland's collections. So Oren, our resident Riley conspiracy theorist, says that the guitar is obviously in Elvis's secret room at Graceland. And so they need to go there and get into the secret room to find it. Nice little Oren, Oren contribution there. Um, then we, you know, we haven't checked in with Billy in a while, so why not do that now? Um, we now learn that Billy has the Mayan jade box that Liam's dad had before he died. So I guess we don't get to go on a little dive for it. She, I guess, did that off screen. Um, <laughs> um, also, just got to say, the box, the, the, the black box for the Aztec box being obsidian, I bought that. This uh, quote-unquote jade box doesn't look like jade at all. Just had to, I don't know if I was the only one who noticed and was bothered by that. Yeah, no, that that's true. <laughs> it is true. But we don't even have time to focus on that because we immediately then jump to Agent Lyndon Ross, um, who is working with Dr. Zeke at the morgue in order to crack the tox report on Agent Sadusky, which she, as it turned out, did not cancel. Um, there are a ton of unknown substances in the tox report, which I feel like happens frequently, but okay. Um, plus, there's an orange stain that they found on Sadusky's hand, which does seem a little suspicious. Um, They basically want to like whittle down the list um, and they can do this. If agent Ross is able to get a list of medications that agent Sadusky was on, which we know he was taking medications because his little stay in uh, nurse person was telling Jess in the first episode that he needed to give Sadusky his medications. Yeah, very, very true. But now we've got to go to Graceland to find this uh, non-existent guitar. So the plan, once they get to Graceland, and my first question was, wait, they're in Baton Rouge. Graceland is not in Louisiana. Like, how far did they drive to do this? They're driving everywhere in, like, a Scooby-Doo van, kind of, which is fun. Mm -hmm. Um, The plan, once they get to Graceland, is to have Oren go into 
the Graceland exhibit and to release these like harmless moths when the Graceland curators open the display cases to Elvis's costumes, um, which is going to freak out the curators and because they're like moths is going to like eat up all the costumes. Um, and then Ethan and Liam are going to dress up as exterminators and go in and be like, we need to search everything at like every dark place here to see if there are moths anywhere. And that's going to get them into the secret room. Oh, also there's a random bearded guy following them to Graceland. Yeah. Uh, aside from that, I you know the the first legit heist had me pumped when they were preparing for this. I was like, yes, there's a plan in place. We're going there. It's awesome. So I was I was into it here. So we're at Graceland now, but we're really not. Uh, everyone online will not let uh, the creators of this show forget that this is not actually Graceland. Everyone is really mad, apparently, about how bad of a Graceland replica they used. This means nothing to me. I've never been to Graceland. I've never seen pictures of Graceland. But people online, this is one of the biggest complaints I have seen on Twitter in the last two weeks, is how much this doesn't look like Graceland. So just going to shout out, like, Twitter folk, we see you. We see you. Um, everything with this plan that I just laid out for you, it goes without a hitch until... The real exterminators get there too early. So Ethan and Liam basically have to abort mission. Um, Liam stuffs his exterminator disguise into a bathroom trash can. To me, this was a perfect subtle nod to Ben Gates and his tuxedo in the trash can at the archives. Um, and Ethan, when he had a moment in the secret room, uh, he was taking pictures with his cell phone of this ebony dove guitar. But they realize quickly that the, the team realizes that once they look at Ethan's photos, it's not about the guitar. It's conveniently about the La Paloma gold record that was conveniently situated right next to the guitar and that Ethan conveniently also accidentally got a picture of. Yeah, I do want to know how they jump from the guitar to the, the record, uh, just like in terms of conceptually, but. They got I, there. They did. I mean, the way they got there is apparently La Paloma means dove itself. And what I thought was clever here is Liam's like, yeah, why is there a gold La Paloma record? That record never went gold. And mm. so that was like a tip off. Um, so Jess uh, maybe has one of her non prefrontal cortex moments that you were referencing before. And she just like rushes into the mansion to get back into the secret room. And, um, Liam creates a massive distraction by playing Elvis songs like on a guitar in the Elvis mansion. Yeah, I have to say, I I mean, I assumed it was an Elvis song um, that Liam was singing, uh, but it didn't, I obviously didn't sound like Elvis to me uh, because Liam does not sound like Elvis. But uh, I really liked this scene. So I was uh, reading on Instagram, actually, in a post from the Wibberleys uh, that mentioned that the playback, which is the kind of like backing track that plays behind an actor when they're playing uh, live, was broken, as well as the neck of the guitar that Jake or Liam was supposed to play was broken on the day of filming. And there was also like this huge storm that was coming in and about to shut down production. So the producers, uh, the prop people actually had to run to a guitar shop and brought it to Jake, Liam. Uh, and then he <laughs> played it and sang the song without playback or like a consistent tempo. And he did that consistently across multiple takes. So like the Wibblies were basically saying like, 
this was really impressive. He's a good musician. And I, I do agree with that. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because of all the times we've heard him sing so far, even past this episode, I thought this was the time he sounded the best. Oh, for sure. Which is pretty cool. Uh, so good for you, Jake Austin Walker. Um, now, here's a little plot hole for y'all. Somehow, Jess just automatically knows where the secret room entrance is. They did not, like, Ethan did not take pictures of that. And also, she rushes out before, like, Ethan can tell her where it is. Now, this, I don't know if you noticed this, Emily. I'm curious. They have, there's like a key code to get into the room. Or Spoiler alert. I didn't notice. <laughs> there's a, there's a key code and there's like Ethan said, there were eight beeps when the, when the curator keyed in the code. So Jess is like the, the key code, it's a date. That's the passcode. Um, it ends up being the key code ends up being the date that Elvis bought Graceland. There's no reason for us to believe this. This is just a logical jump of assumption. Um, but Here's the here's the close watch. Tell me if any of y'all saw this. The date that they end up using to open the door, like to punch into the key code, it does not match the numbers that the curator used when he entered the room. Because when he entered the room, the first like five or six digits, we had a really good view of where on the keypad he was. And because we see a close-up of the keypad later when Jess uses it, we know that the digits that the curator used, the first ones were 99658. Wow. Uh, that is not the date that Elvis bought Graceland. That is not. Uh, I think something that treasure hunters, uh, thieves, really anybody that's trying to break into uh passcode lock should really get into is uh like memorizing the different pitches mm. that each number makes like phones do it too this has definitely been used on the television show leverage and it's uh follow-up leverage redemption um but i feel like the national treasure franchise could you know benefit from from this a little bit love to hear it love to see it um <laughs> okay so jess gets into the secret room she takes the gold record and somehow just knows that she has to play the record, you know, as opposed to like looking on the record or looking on the frame of the record or something like that. She has to play the record on a record, record player. player. <laughs> and so she records like the audio on her phone. It ends up being a distorted voice. And as she's escaping, Tasha our tech guru wipes the security footage from the mansion. Yeah, I will say it is weird that Jess just knew to play it. I think I overlooked that because I thought it was a very creative way to hide a clue. Because, like, if you know anything about what it takes to make a record, um, like, to hide a clue in there, it, it just, I think it was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I love that idea of it, um, of, like, of that and and it ends up working out but we'll get there in a second so then we jump to billy uh billy uses what she has which is apparently only two-thirds well not apparently we knew that which is only two-thirds of this map to basically identify some mesoamerican landmarks and decides to go there in mexico because why would you not do that um there uh she finds a bunch of incan aztec and mayan glyphs that she is able to interpret are all about the underworld 
Uh, so now we're getting into some interesting territory here. Uh, it should be noted here that she is very smart. <laughs> yeah. Which I feel like is is a change of pace for our National Treasure uh, franchise villains. But she does figure, like, she can read the glyphs. She's super capable. She's clearly brilliant. But she does figure this out too late because the underworld point is supposed to clue to the fact that this is a giant trap. She finds out too late because one of her henchmen, Nate, say it with me, falls into a pit and he dies just like Shaw. And I'm way too happy about this, but I actually cackled when this happened in the show. Oh, yeah, it was great. It was a nice, nice throwback reference. I mean, it's national treasure. You got to have somebody dying by falling. You know, Did you? It's- but his scream was very weird. Like, do you know about the Wilhelm scream? Was that the Wilhelm scream? Yeah, I do not know, but I, I do know about that. I think we've talked about it before on this podcast. Okay, well, it was a very weird scream. Um, but something that also differentiates Billy from our traditional national treasure villains, not only is she smart, but she seems to have a little bit of a conscience because she and her henchwoman, Casey, they seem quite torn up about Nate's death. And I quite like that. I... I thought that was weird. Uh, and I think that's just because I thought of villains, like, not really caring. And also, to be fair, we didn't really get to see, like, their relationship. They didn't really explain their relationship. Like, they didn't explain how long they've all been on this hunt together or anything like that. Like, as far as we knew, she had just hired Nate. So, like, I was just like, okay, y'all need to calm down. Like, I understand a man died, and that is very sad. But, like, it to me seemed like it was just like, you know, somebody you they've hear, been working with for two weeks. Do you hear yourself right now? <laughs> oh my! God. Anyway, Aubrey, I think you have a, another point here. I do because as Billy and Casey are, according to Emily, being unnecessarily upset by the death of their friend, um, Casey <laughs> says that. You know, maybe the legend was just crafted to keep the conquistadors busy and lure them into traps. And that was another very on the nose moment, right? Because of the whole, you know, the Templar treasure legend was was made to keep the uh, British occupied during the American Revolution. So anyway, I don't know if I'm the only one who saw that. Um, so now uh, we're back to Jess's gang. Um except we're with Ethan and Liam only. Uh, Ethan, casually, uh, not casually, it makes sense in the moment, tells Liam about Jess's uh, DACA status, mainly because, you know, she was involved in this illegal thing that had just occurred, and he was telling Liam, like, we need to be careful about what we let her do, which, patriarchy. Um, But this is ultimately, turns out to be a, a huge betrayal, which... I didn't necessarily know at the time, like, would be. Uh, but it turns out that... Pretty personal information, I guess. It is. And it turns out that, you know, Jess's rationale for why she feels this way, which she does explain to Liam, is that it changes how people treat her, right? They either, you know, see her and think, like, you should go home now, or they try to protect her super crazily which is kind of what ethan's doing um (laughs) so we'll have to see mm, over the course of the next couple episodes if liam does a better job of handling this situation than someone like ethan does yeah for sure and as the episode is drawing to a close um 
Liam and Jess work together. They use audio editing software, shout out podcasts and music to basically reverse the recording that they got from the record. And it's basically Elvis saying, quote, the twin tongued serpent's tail is revealed in fair weather by the bend in the newfound land. And all I have to say is they should have gotten Austin Butler to voice this. <laughs> Thank you very much. I will be here all week. Um, the audience, however, learns in the tag for this episode that Billy receives this audio recording of Elvis as well. So we're supposed to have this cliffhanger of, oh my gosh, is there a mole amongst the group and who is it? Yeah. Uh so <sighs> overall impressions. This was this was a big one. Heist, good idea. Uh solving for the passcode very random did not love it uh really really as a musician i enjoyed the overlay of liam singing for a distraction (laughs) um i I just it gave me goosebumps it was just a very nice musical moment ultimately not the best episode but i am still here for the show overall uh yeah i really wasn't much of a fan of this episode um and i realized this was the i mean i was picking at things before because that's our job for the previous episodes this is the first episode where i started having a bit of a problem with the series being really on the nose like straight up replicating lines and like almost scenes from national treasure and it made me cringe a little bit i gotta be honest but i will say Billy is quickly becoming my favorite national treasure villain. I know that's heathenry to you, Emily, because you love Sean Bean. Um, but I, I'm really. Yeah, I've never her. spoken to Sean Bean. <laughs> Billy, I mean, we have spoken to Catherine Zeta Jones. So, like, look at you, look at you fucking that in there. Um, she's she just has some depth, and I love how smart she is. Um, my last point is that the episodes starting at this point, I feel like start having a bit of strange pacing like a lot of things are happening really fast making it hard to follow like how they um deduced that whole you know pass to the sun king born to peace and like automatically just like rammed through that um really quickly and the reason i think it's worth worth mentioning is that a common complaint about the National Treasure movies is that they solve clues too quickly. But National Treasure is a two-hour movie, so you kind of have to to some extent. Here, we have 10 episodes, so you could theoretically address that complaint by spending a little bit more time in trial and error mode or explaining a process. But it seems like they do the opposite because it's happening at the same pace as the movies, but it's in the broader context of this much larger span of time. It almost feels even faster. Yeah, that that's interesting. That's a good point. I I don't know. Definitely something for a, a different conversation at a different time. But it just occurred to me that maybe part of the reason why the clues are being solved so quickly, which I agree, I don't always love, maybe is because there are more characters involved in solving the clues. So they're bringing in different perspectives. Whereas before, I mean, it was mainly Ben, Abigail a little bit. Uh, but mainly Ben was doing them in his head very quickly or out loud very quickly. Um, but anyway, agreed with you. Well, I feel like the pacing is going to get even stranger when we get into the next episode. Because we went from going so fast with things to going really, really slow. 
Um, and this is episode four titled our favorite name in the national treasure verse, Charlotte. So it has been three whole days <laughs> and Jess still cannot figure out the twin tongue serpent's tail clue. I can't either because it sounds like nonsense to me, but all of the clues and all of the national treasure franchise material sound like that to me on first pass. So, um, Jess is assuming uh, that the twin-tongued serpent is uh, Malinche, which I don't think is a terrible assumption. Um, somehow the group has decided that Malinche kept a secret diary that she had, even though there's no actual evidence that she could read or write. So Jess is basically like, yeah, she can read and write. But to her credit, Jess does talk to academics who assure her <laughs> that Malinche could not read or write. <laughs> Like, honestly, though, where did the diary bit come from? Could this have been another, like, deleted scene that we didn't see or something? Because, like, honest, where did that come from? Yeah, I think it had to have been a deleted scene because it feels kind of randomly dropped in there otherwise. Yeah, okay. I'm glad I wasn't the only one who didn't, like, we didn't miss that. Like, you didn't see anything before that would hint at a diary, right? Okay. So anyway, this is the infamous Riley episode because Riley Poole arrives in a private jet to attend Agent Sadusky's wake. Now, we learn in some exposition as he's exiting the plane that he has a podcast. That podcast is getting adapted into a streamer series. He also reveals that Ben has a something named Charlotte. <laughs> I say a something because we're meant to assume it's a child. We learn later it is not. Um, and Charlotte's sick. And that's why Ben can't come to the wake. Not because of Nick Cage's crazy schedule or his in not wanting to be on the show for some reason. Um, I just got to say, I watched these episodes, these early episodes with my mom, who National Treasure Hunters will know is a big National Treasure fan. And I thought it was so funny. She couldn't get over how different Riley looked and I was like okay but it has been 15 years um but then I realized like oh wait if they wanted him to look the same as before they could have it's called makeup and movie magic um so yeah he looks a little older he does yeah but you know it's, it's gonna happen also hi mom welcome to season six yes hi Mrs. Paris <laughs> uh so then we jump to Billy because gotta check in with our with our villain uh she is casually reporting to a boardroom full of white old men who are somehow in charge of her treasure hunt uh which she definitely has given the vibe that she is the one holding all the cards so this was an interesting moment um it does say in the boardroom on the wall i'm not gonna say this right so i'm not gonna try aubrey <laughs> I don't know, cross S nostrum, maybe? Yeah, uh, it means tomorrow is ours. Um, so, cool. No idea. Uh, they, they being the old white men, uh, seem very concerned about Salzar. Uh, and it is in this scene also that we learn that Billy's brother was apparently killed looking for the treasure, which is kind of explaining why Billy has such a connection. We also suspected, or at least I did, that Billy was involved in Liam's dad's death, and that's how she has the jade box. Um, but I will say that I'm pretty sure she confirms it because one of the old men is trying to like take over and like and like um, 
mutiny and like take over like whatever the treasure hunt from her whatever he wants the money and they she basically says that she's gonna kill him um by saying let's see what kind of boating accident the board wants you to have and so to me that's like confirmation that she staged liam's dad's death i did not catch that but i like that yeah well i could be wrong but um whatever the treasure hunters, all of them, they go to Agent Sadusky's wake. And of course, the bearded guy that was following them to Graceland is trailing them again. Um, at the wake, the treasure hunters approach Mr. Riley Poole for help cracking the twin-tongued serpent clue. And this was really funny. They literally go up to him and say, we have a clue to a really important treasure that we've been trying to solve. And they just did it so casually, I found it a little weird. But... Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Uh, getting Riley to show up on the show in a logical fashion with, like, Sadusky's funeral was very nice. But I feel like where the energy was spent getting him into the show in a nice fashion uh, was kind of... We saw the lack <laughs> of planning that went into kind of getting him involved with the treasure hunt. It, it felt a little forced, but... Uh... Yeah, I would agree. Uh, and then Riley, he has the, I would say, the quote that's been circling the internet for literal weeks now. He says, Ben and I have been working on this super important thing for the last three, four, 15 years. Let's just say there's 47 reasons to be interested. And he tells Agent Hendricks that whatever they're working on, it's not something that I can discuss right now, which is supposed to be all mysterious and stuff, but I don't know. Us knowing what we know, I'm like, yeah, you can't discuss it because you don't know what it is because it doesn't exist yet. That's true. I also found it really funny that uh, everyone was, like, freaking out online about the this this line being here, um, which, like, fair play, it, if you had no idea about any of National Treasure 3 or anything like that or that it was going to be related to page 47, I get why you would be excited and we too were excited when we heard it but i was also just kind of like okay but like we knew this and then i had to like remind myself like not everyone follows us on social media so not everyone knew that like the third movie was already like in the works yeah no, that's actually really funny gotta we gotta check our pit dwelling nature basically mm. at this point um okay my favorite part of this episode um riley's trying to help him crack this clue and he tries to go all ben on the charlotte or like ben solving the resolute twins in paris moment like the whole soliloquy monologue of of clue deciphering that ben gates is so good at and that nicholas cage admittedly pulls off very well um but it's so funny because riley what he's doing is he's saying ridiculous things and it's very clear that he cannot do the ben thing it's super funny and i i really liked it yeah he's he's still riley until later i have questions um agent ross is also at the wake. Uh, she sneaks into Agent Sadusky's study and she finds an English yew plant in the room, which is apparently poisonous. And she takes samples with her to bring to Dr. Zeke for the tox analysis. Um, now, I will say um, 
Hendrix, Agent Hendrix finds her in the house and says, you know what, Agent Lyndon Ross, I know you didn't cancel that tox report, but Agent Hendrix has his own Mitch change of heart moment and without any prompting says, I respect you for not giving up and I will support you 100%. Yeah, so this either this felt weird to me in the moment thinking about it a little more i'm a little more okay with it it either to me indicates that hendrix somehow involved and is gonna tamper with things or that he is trying to make up for the fact that he did not listen to like ben and riley when they came to him with information so now he's trying to listen to agent lyndon ross i kind of hope your former prediction is correct because i'm all for the fbi agents being the bad guy because y'all know how i feel about sadowski um okay riley just kind of accidentally stumbles his way into the clue room which is probably very hard to do because again like trick bookcase um but jess ends up finding him there and, and riley ends up getting himself and jess locked into the clue room by touching the do not touch the ocular device very riley yeah, and it, it this ends up setting off an alarm, and when the alarm goes off, the oxygen starts depleting in the room, and literally the whole episode will now be spent on them trying to figure out Sadusky's password to get out, which, this is where, to me, the pacing gets a little weird. This feels a little filler to me. I get that. Um, I My question is, why did Sadusky trap the room like this, like, to kill people? Uh, feels weird just for like touching in Riley's case the ocular device um but anyway the idea here I really liked this that the life or death situation I thought it was a nice oddly enough compared to what you just said Aubrey I thought it was a nice change of pace where now we were kind of like in a more serious situation that we had to find our way out of rather than just like in a heist it's now like no, we could die. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I could see how you see it that way. I'd be curious to, to hear what folks online think for sure. Um, it turns out that they compare the situation to an escape room. Riley thinks escape rooms are stupid. I thought that was funny. Um, they first try Agent Sadusky's birthday, which I will repeat here because it seems like an important tidbit in national treasure lore. Uh, Sadusky's birthday was August 11th, 1938. How'd you like the August 11th, Emily? Dude, I, I don't know how I have not mentioned it to you, but like the fact that it was a day before my birthday was like all I could focus on for the next like two minutes. I, I missed other things that happened. Obviously, a day before the date of my birthday, not a day before the actual year. Yeah. I, I'm, I wasn't born well, in 1938. Really? I thought you were. Oh, my God. Um, And we learned that the only reason Riley knows uh, Sadusky's birthday is because him and Ben send Sadusky a present every year as a thank you for not being sent to prison. I thought that was funny. Um, Okay. Now comes the huge freaking plot hole that I cannot get over for this episode. Are you ready, Emily? And I'm, I'm wondering if you saw this as well. I'm ready. They're like trying to figure out how to like the passcode. Right. And there's a big revelation. They're like, Oh my gosh, he had dementia. He must've hid the passcode somewhere in the room just in case he forgot. Cause he has dementia. But what ends up happening is the guy with, dementia who can't remember an eight-digit passcode 
He's supposed to remember to tease out three multi-tiered clues to rediscover the passcode. Ah, uh, that bothered me a little bit. I mean, maybe he wrote the solution down for himself somewhere. The <laughs> JK, JK, this was dumb. Okay, okay, God, yeah, I was like very good. But also the the idea of him, you know, the the rationale behind, like him having dementia and him at least writing down the components of the passcode that makes sense. somewhere makes a lot of sense because uh, you wouldn't want to write down the whole passcode i guess um but you know i know that it's a problem that with people who have memory issues then where they lose the the notes so i mean i think he'd be more likely to because in theory, his passcode is now separated onto three random objects that he now has to remember to solve clues to find those objects. And gosh, maybe he's going to lose one of those objects if we're worried about losing one note, but we're not losing a, worried about losing one of three objects. It seems like a higher percent chance. True. Anyway. That being said, the first object was the FBI seal that was above the keypad. Um, and that feels hard to lose. Yes. However, that doesn't hold any piece of the code. That's just supposed to be a hint to all the other pieces of the code. And for some reason, Jess immediately knows that it's not about the FBI. It's about the FBI's motto, fidelity, bravery, integrity. So they have to figure out one object for each of those words basically and so they're like oh what's you know for example what's fidelity mean it means loyal what's loyal a wife a knight a dog and there's like a dog statue in the room so the number 74 is written underneath the dog statue and like that's the first bit of the code um now i will say emily and i'm curious to hear your thoughts this is where they start losing me a little bit with the riley character I, I really felt like they either started to forget how to write for him or Justin Bartha forgot a little bit how to play him. So what happens here is as the oxygen levels are starting to decrease in the room, um, obviously both him and Jess start getting sick. But his reaction to this feels like an over-exaggerated caricature to me, particularly because he is losing, like he's falling all over the place. He's groaning. He can't anything compared to Jess, who is starting. She's like, I don't feel so good, but she's like, fine. She, you know what I mean? And he's like falling. He's crawling. It's, it felt, it actually felt kind of weird to me. And it was, I found it a little distracting, which disappointed me a little bit. I don't know. Yeah. I can, thinking about it now, I can see how that could be true. Um, I know it, it did not bother me because <laughs> I was Riley. Um, I will say that it was nice to see Riley kind of like be able to be the only quote adult in the room because it was like just him and Jess. But at the same time, it feels weird that Jess in this situation was like seemingly more of an adult than Riley. I think that's a great point. Um so then we go on to the next piece of the clue, uh, bravery. Um, after Riley falls all over the floor, he finds Jack Sadesky's silver star. This signifies bravery. And on the back of the silver star is the number 11. So that's part two. Uh, we also learn here as they're kind of like sitting around half dying, um, 
we we learn the backstory of how Ben figured out the Charlotte clue. This is like exciting. This was exciting. Um, apparently, he thought it was a woman. Maybe he thought it was Charlotte the slave from Mount Vernon. Um, but Riley was talking to him one day about like, oh, I'm going to buy a yacht when we find the treasure. And what am I going to name the yacht? And that's what made Ben realize that Charlotte could be a ship. And for some reason, this makes Jess realize that Malinche wasn't the only indigenous person forced to help the colonizers. <laughs> I mean, person, they thought Charlotte was a, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I tried, I don't know. Um, And specifically, the one other indigenous woman that it must be is Sacagawea. I mean, granted, if you're going to think of a popular woman from the time who we knew helped colonizers, it so- would this one ends up, I mean, it kind of, the Sacagawea part makes a little bit more sense in a minute, but the whole connection between the Charlotte Clue and the yacht and the whole Malinche Sacagawea was a little stretch for me. To me, I giggled a little bit because I was like, oh, is this evidence that the Wibberleys didn't know about the prequel books? Because like Sacagawea was a part, a big part of the prequel books. And like, we don't really reuse components in this franchise very much. It seems to be. Yeah, I thought that was fun. I mean, we know they didn't know about the prequel books. That's true. Um, so We have that on interview. Yeah, on record. Um, Okay, last part of the FBI puzzle. Integrity. It means completeness and unity. And so on the wall, there's a picture of the, I call this the Ben Franklin Joiner Die Snake. Yeah, yeah. Y'all know what I mean? Okay. And the Joiner Die Snake has different letters surrounding it that are an anagram. And because the digits for the passcode have to be a number, it's an anagram for like the spelling of a number. Jess says it's 81. Riley says it's 180. And then they end up choosing to try 81. It's their last guess before the passcode options run out. Um, they choose to do 81 because it was Jess's idea. And according to Riley, Jess thinks like Ben. Now I say you do 81 because no one would spell the word 180 as 180 they would say 180 but that's just me you're smiling (laughs) it's just funny um so we survived the escape room the death-defying escape room and jess is able to say to her friends i figured out the twin tongue tails twin is that it twin that's a tongue twister (laughs) i figured out the twin tongue serpent's tail that's it twin tongue serpent's tail clue she says newfound land means newfoundland like the dog the dog breed that lewis and clark took with them on their expedition plus the whole fair weather part of the clue is merryweather which did you notice that's an exact replica from the prequel series book I didn't notice that, but I did. It did make a lot of sense to me. So maybe that was my subconscious <laughs> trying to remember something that I had forgotten. Yeah. And so this is how they got to Sacagawea as the other twin tongued serpent, I guess. Um, they say, and this happens really, really fast. And this is something that I do want to spend a minute on because it's, I think it's an actual inconsistency that's worth discussing. They say Sacagawea was entrusted with a clue that she hid in the Lewis and Clark expedition journal that was dedicated to Meriwether's dog. Because again, she knew the journal would be preserved. 
but they ask themselves, they're like, oh, well, how did she get the clue from Morning Dove White? Right? Mm-hmm. And this is when Riley chimes in. Riley, Riley with his little Ben moment. And it's a real Ben moment. He it does is. it. He, I'm so proud of him. He explains that the answer is York. York was an enslaved man who was like critical to Lewis and Clark's success on their journey. And according to Riley, York also made, quote, entries about secrets in this journal. Now, Riley explains, this is very important, after the expedition, York was on his way home to Kentucky, but he didn't make it. He ended up in Tennessee and died there. But who's from Tennessee? Morning Dove White. Does this clue actually make sense? I'm not so sure. So, Emily, I want to ask you, how did you understand this clue when you saw it on screen? Or did you not? Because not is very fair. This happens very fast. Yeah, I mean, for me, a lot of the National Treasure stuff, I understand upon multiple, multiple rewatches and deep thinking, which I... To be fair, I was very, you know, with Riley in this episode. Uh, So, yeah, I I didn't really. (laughs) So here's the thing. The thing about the clues in the movies, even if you watch them multiple times, eventually 98% of them make sense. I say 98% because there's like 2% that we talk about in our upcoming book that actually is a little bit of a plot hole. Most of it makes sense. I thought about this so hard. My initial interpretation is that was that morning dove white meets york post expedition when he's dying in tennessee and tells him some clue but then he has to then write that into the journal somehow before dying it doesn't work but the reason my brain went there immediately is because there's no reason for us as the audience to expect the clues to be coming at us out of order in terms of how they were synthesized and put together in history. Because mm-hmm. up until this point, it's been fairly linear. Yeah. So naturally, as the audience, that's where my mind went. But that clearly doesn't make sense, right? The expedition's over. York would not have access to the journal again after the expedition's over, not to mention the fact that once he was in Tennessee, he died. He didn't leave again to go find the journal and write into the journal. But if the clues are coming to us a little bit less linear and they're coming at us out of order, try this interpretation on and tell me what you think. Sacagawea got the clue from a daughter of the plume serpent. So this is a way that we're actually getting Sacagawea back in here. Mm-hmm. She wrote it into the journal. And she either told York about it. Or York saw it. Because he also had access to this journal. York. Then ends up in Tennessee. He's dying. He can't get to Kentucky. He ends up in Tennessee. Where he encounters Morning Dove White before he dies. And he tells Morning Dove White this clue. Why would he do that? I have absolutely no idea. And so Morning Dove White tells the clue that points to the journal to Elvis, who then records it on the record. So it's still out of order. but it's, This one is super out of order. It's basically saying, 
the clue that York slash Sacagawea were sort of responsible for is the record that we already found in a weird way. You know what yeah. I mean? Because it like, which is super out of order. But the, and so this makes a little more sense, but I still think there's problems here, right? To me, there's an issue with why York told Morning Dove White. Could we say that York was committed to preserving the clue, but that was why it was written into the journal. So I don't think that quite works. But even if York was preserving the clue, why would he be committed to preserving the clue? Also, why wouldn't Sacagawea just preserve the clue as opposed to giving that task to a non-Indigenous, non-Daughters of the Plumed Serpent man? Do we know what happened to Sacagawea after the expedition? Um, well, we know what happened in the prequel books. She was around for a bit. Um, I'm assuming that's yeah. true. Yeah. I'm wondering if she, like, realized, like, either wasn't going to be finished with Lewis and Clark in a timely manner or like realized that she was in danger or wasn't going to get back or like something and possibly that's why she entrusted the clue to this only other kind of like person that was you know on this trek who wasn't like a white Hmm. man but I, I obviously I'm just making that up but totally totally and I think that's a good prediction uh but I don't know that that fully explains it just because her job as a as a translator and a communicator she would come into contact on the expedition with so many other Native American tribes and presumably so many other Native American women or just indigenous people in general to kind of continue passing it through indigenous people which is like sort of the yeah there's not a reason that it has to go to elvis at any point no not at all exactly yeah um so something for everyone to think about i would if we're way off on this interpretation please let us know um i'd really like to hear your thoughts Anyway, we are nearing the end of this episode um, with a really cringe makeout scene between Jess and Liam and then an equivalent one between Ethan and his girlfriend Mina at the wake. I like to see Jess and Liam kiss. That abruptly, huh? Yep. Okay, I knew you would. Um, And in the sort of tag of the episode, Riley's about to get back on his private jet and depart, but he calls Jess and says, hey, listen. Some treasure hunters just approached Dr. Helen Mirren and played her that Elvis recording. So someone amongst your team is a mole. And I don't know if you noticed this, Aubrey, but the biggest revelation here is that Riley calls Dr. Helen Mirren Dr. Emily Gates, uh, which I did pick up on. Which suggests that she and Patrick got remarried, because if you'll remember, even though we never refer to her by her actual name in the film, her name was Dr. Emily Appleton. Yeah. So, yay for love. Love wins. I'm so proud of you for seeing that. Oh, for you. Okay, overall impressions. Um, I really hate to say it. I had such high expectations for this episode, because it's the Riley episode, but I was... You know, that's what they say. You don't have high expectations. I was pretty disappointed. You know, I thought that Riley started off really strong. And then, again, somehow they he forgot how to be his character or something in the Clue Room. Um, but also, the biggest part I had with this was, like, 
the whole escape room bit, it felt so fillery. Nothing of real consequence happened. And to me, it was odd pacing uh, continued. It was nice to see Riley. I loved seeing Riley. Um, but, you know, when you have those huge expectations, it's really hard to meet them. Yeah. Um, Riley was there. There was a kiss. We have proof that marriages were reunited. I was good. <laughs> Low bar for you, huh? Yep. There is there are no high expectations for you. You know Riley better. is the high expectation. His presence was enough. <laughs> His presence was a present. But hey, we're on to our last episode bit of this podcast episode episode five and gosh the title of this episode bad romance emily i bet you're gonna like this one Mm, that's (laughs) not right um (laughs) so we start off you know we got billy billy in here we haven't once again we haven't checked in on billy in a while i feel like we're losing track of her so we, we we start the episode with billy there's some more history just being thrown in her billy's tech guy is trying to solve this the clue the the plume tongue serpent whatever clue it, it's a lot i'm not going to try and say it all um and she's ba- and he is basically being schooled by billy uh with a bunch of information that is irrelevant to actually solving the clue but at least hey it's proving that this man does not know what he's talking about and billy knows enough to know that so billy thinks this twin tongue serpent deal person is Malinche um and a secret slash lost quote codex so like the same diary idea yeah and she came to it all on her own amazing uh so you know she goes with that um Cortez's journal uh that Malinche wrote in she decides she is going to buy off of a black market antiquities dealer um and there was a weird scene in here that I got confused by uh, that we could talk about at a later time. It's fine. Um, but then we get, oh, my heart is breaking. We get to Jess, Tasha, Ethan. I I don't know where Orin is at this point. Well, I know why Orin's not here, respectfully, with the rest of the episode. But, like, I where is he right now? I don't know. Um, they all think that Liam is the mole, and of course Jess is, like, super upset about this because, like, Jess kissed Liam, and he is hot and seemed to be a good kisser, so depressing. Tasha does the only thing anyone would do in this situation and hacks into Liam's bank account and sees that <laughs> Liam just happened to get a $50,000 deposit into his account. Um, so she tells... Your Tasha tells Jess to ghost uh, Liam. There's that that slang uh, from this era that we like to throw in the show um, because they think that Billy is the one that paid him this $5,000. Five, five, $50,000, dude. $50,000. I can't read. It's It's <laughs> been a long, it's been a long recording. <laughs> oh, Emily is so unhappy right now. Um, So we learn that Meriwether Lewis's journal is at the Louisiana governor's mansion because Meriwether was the governor of Louisiana. Um, however, the journal is only on display for special events, uh, just like the governor's reelection fundraiser ball, which is just conveniently tomorrow night. 
And so Liam buys him and Jess tickets with his $50,000, presumably. Um, But Jess accuses him of working with Billy. She, like, literally admits to him about the bank account hacking, which was, like, super dumb. Yeah. Um, I do think, I thought in this scene, it was there was an interesting link here to the idea that the journal in this scene was going to be present for special events. Uh, and comparing this with the Declaration of Independence, obviously, typically being on display um, in the National Archives, although occasionally, you know, we know they they're in uh, they they put a fake one there while they you know do some stuff but the point of the tyson national treasure was that they actually had to get the declaration taken out of the display case into the preservation room um which just goes to tell you that security is much more chill here with this with this journal <laughs> Now back with our with our protagonist here, uh, we see conflict in this show being resolved very quickly. Like conflict arises at the end of an episode and the beginning of the next episode, it is solved. A good example of that here is we immediately discover who is the mole? Well, it's not Liam. Billy actually planted a bug in Oren's sneakers. Remember when she kidnapped him and was giving him sneakers? I guess she actually ended up giving him the sneakers during the kidnapping. How kind of her. Um, And that is how Billy got the Elvis recording. Now, separately, again, in another country, in Mexico, Billy um, meets with an academic male professor in a literal 100% direct replica, you cannot convince me otherwise, Emily, of Mitch going to see Dr. Helen Mirren um, in National Treasure 2. It hurts me. I understand that you didn't like this. I I did like the nod to National Treasure 2 and Dr. Helen Mirren because let's throw her in there whenever we can so this academic man um whose name is apparently dr torres the uh subtitles taught me he proves to billy that the journal she bought from that antiquities dealer is a fake based on like a handwriting analysis of cortez himself i thought that was pretty cool um i missed that completely Really? Oh my gosh, I loved that. It's like an actual forensic application that people use like in handwriting analysis. They do it on the screen. I thought it was awesome. Admittedly, we did just watch this episode. Well, I watched this episode for the first time last night with our uh, Discord channel. And I did find myself struggling a little to pay attention to the episode as I was chatting in the Discord. Almost like I said, it would be really hard to do Discord watch parties when we're watching it for the I first think it would have been fine if I had, like, a couple days to re-watch the episode instead of just recording the day after, but, like... Okay, we'll take that up with Disney+, Plus. okay? Anyway, um, Jess and Liam, they're fighting, right? Because uh, Jess, like, accused him of being a mole. Um, they make up because Jess makes Liam feel bad for being mad at her for her accusation, um and in case you were (laughs) sorry this is this is exactly how our recap and commentary episodes about the movies ended up being by the end we were just just sassafras oh yeah yeah and we will we will have a full wrap up of (laughs) what we think about the show thus far uh but yes if we are a bit sassy right now it is late and we are both tired of speaking to one another um (laughs) in this manner (laughs) okay okay yeah so so they make up whatever whatever yay kiss 
Um, and in case y'all were wondering, the $50,000 was for property taxes on Sadusky's house. Super boring, as Jess points out. So, um, Billy, back to Billy, she sees in the background of one of Oren's sneaker videos that Jess is wearing this necklace. And oh my gosh, it's the Daughters in the Bloom Serpent necklace, which means that Jess is the daughter of Raphael for some reason. Yeah, Um, but everyone thought, according to Billy, that Raphael's wife and daughter were killed trying to cross the border. Which, like, what? We did not know this. (laughs) No! Um, But, okay, and then here's another stretch. I wonder if you like this, Em. Um, They're, again, still monitoring Jess and stuff. So, based on the fact that they watched Jess and Liam leave the house carrying a tuxedo, they realized that that these two treasure hunters must be going to the governor's ball and so based on that, Billy just knows that the real interpretation of the clue, the twin tongue tail serpent clue, something, is Lewis and Clark slash Sacagawea. I will say I did like how they were able to figure out that Liam carrying a tux meant that they were going to the governor's ball. I think, one, they were kind of hinting at the fact that, like, Baton Rouge, no, no dissing Baton Rouge, doesn't seem like a town, like, say dc where there might be a lot of very high class events happening in one night they also did some research which kind of reminded me of when they were calling around to see in national treasure 2 where they could host the president's birthday party um to figure out like what fancy event was taking place and this was the only one (laughs) This was the only one. Well, what I, what I liked about this scene is actually what happens next. Once Billy deduces the whole Sacagawea thing, um, she explains that Meriwether Lewis, after his expedition, was on a trek to deliver a journal to the President of the United States in Washington, D.C., but he died along the way. Apparently, his death was ruled a suicide, but... You know, Billy here, she says, no, he was actually murdered to steal the journal. And then she has this, like, mic drop moment. Lewis was murdered for the wrong journal because the real journal is at the governor's mansion. I thought this was an amazing example of classic national treasure, taking a real historical fact and maybe putting a spin on it. Mm, I do like that. So... Now we're back with the science people. You know, we got to love them here, both scientists by training. Um, Dr. Zeke confirms for Agent Lyndon Ross that the English U was, which remember they found, uh, was actually what killed Sadusky. So he was poisoned. There was also a line in here that I loved that I'm sure nobody that is listening to this podcast anymore, because we have made our views abundantly clear, uh, will be offended by. But I did love the idea that uh, Dr. Z, somewhere in the conversation, it was said, like, this is the case if you believe in science. (laughs) And they were like, no, I believe in science. And I was just like, "Mm, sometimes that that needs to be said. Um, So, yeah. Now that Emily is off her soapbox, she can get on to the governor's mansion gala, which is where the whole group is about to go. Uh, We learn that... This whole fundraiser, political fundraiser, it's actually a birthday party for the governor, and they're going to bring out birthday cake at 6.15. Why so, so early? Because the governor's old. Not that old. So it's at 6.15 when they need to be able to go look at the journal while security is occupied with the governor. 
And I am already cringing, as you might expect at this point, at how on the nose this is, again, with the National Archives Gala. Yep. So, um, Oren being Oren, I mean, I love him, but this was dumb of him. It was it was dumb of everyone involved, uh, it, 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 of all the characters involved. Oren then goads Jess and Ethan into doing their middle school cotillion dance, which, like, what? Um... To which they apparently did to Bad Romance, which just happens to be playing at the Governor's Ball, um, slash birthday party, um, and they do this, mm, this dance. It is why, why did this happen? What Please describe. What, literally, describe your feelings about the dance, Emily. I had my face covered the whole time. It was secondhand embarrassment the whole time for me. They danced very well from what I could see between my fingers. I thought that the actors did a great job with like the choreography. Um, it just, it was very weird that it was happening there. It was, ve- they both got like too into it, but like to a degree where it felt like Jess was like very into it, but like at no point, in this series thus far have we gotten the impression that Jess likes Ethan in that way we've always got the impression that she's the one of like let's just keep it friends so the fact that she was getting into it was weird it was awkward there was no point literally the only point was to upset Mira Ethan's girlfriend and Liam uh, which was dumb Um, Liam goes away because you know they pan over and suddenly he's not there anymore uh, mostly so that the audience also thinks he he's upset. Jess ends up finding Liam Ooh. as he is rushing out of the journal room. Turns out he stole the journal, and I just about vomited when the security guard said, you stole the journal to Jess because she's now the last person in the room. And at this point, I just have to ask, like, what is more than on the nose? Up the nose? Down the trachea and into the lungs? Ah, ah, I can't. I can't with this. Also, she's running away from the guards, which is stupid, because if she just let them search her, it would have been obvious she didn't have the journal. She literally doesn't have a bag, and her dress doesn't have any pockets. Ah. (laughs) Thank you for that, Aubrey. I, interestingly enough, didn't even think about the line, you stole the journal, as being related to directly to National Treasure. I don't know why I just... I mean, it wasn't... That one wasn't direct. It was just the whole stealing bit unexpected yeah well like, you're saying on the nose so directly you know and you know i get uh, that we'll but talk also, about it ugh, fine i don't want to get in an argument here ugh. i assumed that was the plan the whole time though i recognize that oh, my assumptions i recognize that my assumptions are not accurate and as i've said before i was very distracted <laughs> while watching this episode last night okay so anyway in the meantime everybody's running away we, we i don't know some we need a distraction. Tasha does this in her lovely Tasha fashion, um, where she stands on a table and starts ranting and chanting. She starts trying to do a little chant at some point, which Orin joins in on, and she's like not about it. Um, she basically does this whole rant um, aimed at lazy politicians. Uh, some of the points that she made were fair, um, so that Jess can escape. Uh, I did like the fact that at the end she was kind of, or at the end Tasha was kind of like, 
like, what are you going to do about it? And the governor was like, oh, well, we love to see political activism in the youth of today. And I was just like, okay. Um, anyway, Jess runs out the door and comes upon this car, at which I yelled out loud, get in the car with Liam. Why Liam would suddenly have a car when they've been, like, driving buses everywhere, I don't know. Um, Billy's in the car with a slightly new hairstyle, um, and she ends the episode by saying, get in, and get in, just us. And that is the end. That episode is really fun to do. Like, this episode five recap was was fun. Um, okay, I wasn't a huge fan of this episode very much either, um, just like the last one. For what it's worth, I did find this interesting when I was taking notes on these episodes for the purposes of this podcast episode. As we said at the beginning, I'm really trying to only write down big points that are plot essential. And this episode, this episode five, resulted in my shortest notes list by far. It was only one page. Um, so I feel like this is more evidence of maybe some pacing struggles. Um, if not that much of importance happened here. Yeah. What do you think, Em? Um, it was fine. Um, I will be forever marred. I don't even know if that's the right use of that word, but I'll be forever scarred by that dance scene. Um, <laughs> I We can share it on social media, but there was a picture <laughs> sent in our Discord chat last night by my lovely fiance um, of me watching that scene, and you can clearly see the horror um, that was there. I'm glad we resolved the mole thing. I understand that it, it's very quick, um, but I think from what the Wibberleys have said, there's a lot that needs to happen in these episodes, so I understand like why they wanted to do it. Also, I don't like conflict, so yay. Um, I still think Ethan's being weird. I still think he's probably somehow still involved in saying. Um, and then I like the Billy twist at the end. So, yeah, it was, you know, it was there. Okay, so five episodes in, we're halfway through this first season of National Treasure, Edge of History. Overall thoughts on the first half of the season as a whole, expectations or hopes for the second half of the season. What do you got from him? I mean, it's not perfect. I never expected it to be. Um, it's not the National Treasure movies, which is a good thing. But I'm ultimately enjoying being part of this world again. Um, I enjoy that it's something that I can look forward to, you know, getting a National Treasure related thing every every week for at least five more weeks, I guess. Yes. Um, math, I can do it. Um I hope that they wrap some things up in the second season, like some dangly ends that are there. I don't know if they're going to, um, but I also just feel like, and maybe it's, I'm biased because I watch a lot of Marvel Disney Plus shows, but like what tends to happen in them is like there's this buildup and there's some pacing stuff that's weird. And then like all of a sudden in like the last three episodes, like everything comes to a head. Um and as annoying as that can be for the other episodes, it is always really fun when suddenly there's just like so much coming at you. So I am looking forward to hopefully being able to experience that and like understand the context for everything that we've learned so far. Are you ready for the shocker of the day? Is it going to be a shock? I completely agree with you. What? Yeah. 
I pretty much completely agree with you. I think your assessment, the first things you said were really, to me, tells the whole tale. It's not perfect and it's not the National Treasure movies, but I'm interested in what the resolution to the story is. Um, I realized, especially by doing the close watch to prepare for this episode, that I didn't really start having a problem until episode three. Um, And that's because for me, it got more literal in terms of replicating National Treasure stuff. Um, Talk about it on another episode, Aubrey. We we are, and I'm going to explain why I have a problem with it later. For now, you just get to know that I have a problem with it. I think everybody knows. I'm glad. I'm glad they do. Um, But what I will say, uh, just to give everyone, I don't know, maybe a little bit of a teaser, um, I've seen a couple screeners of episodes that have not aired yet. That Um, I did not get. (laughs) But I, I'm I'm really happy to say that the next episode, episode six, is my favorite so far. Mm-hmm. And episode seven is not so much. So, like, we're I, – I like to think that here on National Treasure Hunt, we are critical, but we are objective. Uh, and we try to analyze things really closely. So, ultimately, um, I know everyone who's been listening to us for a while knows this well, but just for anyone who's newer to the show – um, we are really happy that this show exists, that National Treasure Edge of History exists. Uh, we love everyone involved with the show. We know mm-hmm. a lot of them. Um, but we see it as our duty to kind of provide a critical analysis using the unique perspective we have as, you know, we used to say it jokingly, experts in the National Treasure movies. But yeah, pretty legit now. Experts in the National Treasure movies, a perspective that hopefully we can provide somewhat uniquely. So we hope that that came across here today. Uh, think about things a little differently, make you consider how you've been watching the show, but uh, but know that, you know, we're really excited to be watching along with all of you as well. Yeah, and and just to echo, you know, what Aubrey just said, if you go back and you listen to our, you know, recap episodes of National Treasure and National Treasure Book of Secrets, you'll hear the same kind of thing. And you'll also hear us at the beginning and the end make the same, like, statements where we're like, I know it didn't sound great, but we do love these films. Um, because yeah, I mean, it's, it's always fun to look deeper into things and that's what we do here. And this is the first time that we're talking about this series in podcast form, right? And just like the first episode of our podcast ever, where we talked about the first National Treasure movie in this form, there's so much, as you know, we are on season six. There is so much that we can pull out from this kind of stuff and have the same conversations that we've been having about the National Treasure movies, but with this series. And so I would just say, as we continue to move forward, we hope to incorporate some of that into this season and future seasons but yes we love watching it with you and we are very happy to be doing this podcast in a time when there is new national treasure related content and if you feel the same way or want to find us for any reason because you like us hopefully um you can find us on social media we are at nt hunt podcast on both twitter and instagram and you can also find all the information about us on our website And with that, I think it's finally time to wrap up this podcast episode, which it was a long one, but it was necessary. If you are still here, thank you. (laughs)
our next episode will be a normal length, we promise. Um, it's going to be a pretty basic early on character analysis of our seven main characters from National Treasure Edge of History, you know, to make sure everyone, including listeners who aren't watching the show regularly like we are, we need to make sure we're all on the same page for the rest of our podcast season. Now, I do want to say that's not to say that we're never talking about the movies again. We are talking about them a lot coming up. Um, but we need y'all to be on the same page with us. So we've got to get to know our characters better. But until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our national treasure hunt.